introduce to you uh, Tim Russell. Tim, if you want to come. Uh, Tim led our men's retreat this weekend, and uh, uh, it was wonderful for us. He was here last fall at the men's breakfast. Uh, Tim is known to us through those circles, but also as uh, knew Caleb Stiegel when Caleb was in college, so you could probably get some good stories on Caleb if you ask him. But uh, as uh, Tim was the chaplain and college pastor at Geneva College, Tim's been involved in a number of scholarly pursuits and, and in academic uh, institutions over the years. Um, presently, he serves on the pastoral staff of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, one of our flagship um, evangelical Presbyterian churches. And so we are delighted that Tim is here uh, this morning. And so I would like, if you'll allow me, to, uh, to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful for your word. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Say so it restores our souls. Uh, it leads us in every good uh, gift that you give to us. And so we pray that we would receive it. We pray for our dear brother, Tim, as he comes and shares with us uh, by your spirit, I pray you give him the power to speak that which is true and also by your spirit that you would work in us to hear all that which is true and transform our lives. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is always a privilege to preach the Word of God, and I'm glad to do so and share the bread of life with you, brothers and sisters. I bring you greetings from Memphis, and I'm delighted to have returned again this fall. And We had a delightful men's retreat, and for those who were at the retreat, you will hear some references to part of our topic during the weekend, the supremacy of Christ as we try to finish well. We will look specifically this morning at the supremacy of Christ as we look at the Word of God from Colossians 1, page 983 in your pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you. Please hear the word of God. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I Paul have become a servant And as we continue in worship, we proclaim together from our bulletin, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And indeed it does. The supremacy of Christ, our title this morning. We recognize that each of us is motivated, controlled, inspired by our notion of those things which are whole and true and of some value to us. The apprehending of this objective and subjective reality and our embracing of that, that is, the things that we hear and see are taught and believe and then adopt as the code for our life, is called our worldview. And each of us has that worldview, those things that motivate us, those things that tell us right, wrong, good, or bad to seek after, to avoid. Mores, some would call it. Habits. We each have a worldview. The Christian worldview makes the triumphalistic assertion that the God of the Bible alone is worthy of our allegiance. He alone is worthy of worship. From him ought to come everything that forms our worldview of what we know to be good and evil, to be righteous and unrighteous, to be that which is eternal and to be longed after, and that which will not last and will be burned up on the last day. The Christian faith is a worldview that alone is characterized by a felicitous partnership, a marriage, if you will, of spirit, mind, and will. Faith, reason, and action. It's what we have heard, what we then take in and say, that makes sense, and that is now what I'm going to do. Faith, reason, an action. An orthodox, a true Christian worldview starts with God, a God who is, a God who speaks, a God who creates, a God who incarnates in Jesus Christ, a God who enters into an active, responsive, loving, intimate, daily relationship with his creation. Yes, 
a God who in Jesus dies for his people. Genesis records God and his creative fiat, his let it be, calling the whole cosmos into being. I never stop after all these years of being a Christian, of just thinking of the glory of that, of God and his eternal imagination in that blessed holy trinity, just speaking the world in all of its majesty, in all of its splendor, in the power of it, just into being. And so it was. He spoke it into being by the word, that powerful, life-generating word, which the Apostle John tells us is Jesus, our Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Savior of humankind. Christianity alone, and I'll say it again, And I'll be dogmatic about it, not because of my notion, because of what the scripture says. Christianity alone is the curative dose for that rotten seed of sin in us. That seed of post-modernity with its deadening tendency toward despair and fragmentation. If we have not found the comfort of our souls in the Christian faith, then where are we left? With whatever one person or the other or some philosophy will say is true, but it's always deadening to our spirit. It will never bring peace. Those other things outside of the scripture will never bring life. will never bring comfort either in life or in death. It was the Dutch theologian, scholar, haberdasher, jack-of-all-trades, Abraham Kuyper, who helps us to understand the nature of this all-encompassing worldview. He expressed it well in a number of different ways, both in America and on the continent, the one that speaks most powerfully is this. There is not one square inch of the created domain over which the ascended Christ does not say, this is mine. Another way of saying it is, Jesus looks upon the world and he says, I imagined it in the concert with my Father and the Spirit of Holiness. I determined that it would come about I spoke it into being. I created it. I entered into it in my very person. I endured the slings of sin and sorrow in it. I redeemed it. I am Lord and King over all. Any human potentate who would try to say those things with that authoritarian nature would be laughed at. We think that the, the person was out of his or her mind. Jesus speaks that, and he says, the whole world is mine. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. This is mine. Everything that you see and has been and will be is mine in the entire cosmos. Well, that alone should send us to worship and praising, shouldn't it? 
when we think, I am my beloved's, and he is mine, as the scripture says. But on what basis may such universalistic claims be made? Let me suggest there are three reasons, and each of them involves God and humankind. I'll speak this morning about the splendor of creation, the vastness of the fall, and the glory of redemption. The splendor of creation, the vastness of the fall, and the glory of redemption. The splendor of creation. Who are we created to be? Gardeners? Laborers? To use a word we don't use much more, vicegerents, princes, and princesses. We are the apex of creation. We are the best that God has made. Purposely. Psalm 8 speaks of who we are as ones who are created at the high point of creation, as the scripture says, with light and glory crowning us created just a little lower than the angels. We're created with true knowledge, with true holiness, the ability to think and act, to create and to respond. The ability to respond appropriately to God, nature, and our fellow creatures as well. The splendor of the creation is such that in every age we continue to see and be amazed at all the glorious things around us. One of the privileges of being a preacher and going from place to place is to see what went into the imagination of people in planning their place of worship. As we walked in this morning, I said to Brother Vogler, what a handsome place to worship. Well, think of I think of all the many, many places that people think of. Some with carpet on the floor, some not, some with flagstone, some with bigger, some smaller, whatever it is, as we all think about how shall we respond in the place we live, in the context in which we are, when we come to worship. Think about the decoration of your home or public buildings and all that there is and all that changes from age to age. Think about all the things in the arts and the sciences that we as ones who are creating after God's image, think about and how different they are from place to place and from generation to generation. Think of all the many ways in which we have to worship God. If I go to a hundred different places of worship, I'll hear different songs and I'll say, I'll never heard that one. Ah, that's interesting. Oh, I haven't heard that in many years. I haven't heard it in that, to that tune. I haven't heard it in that key. Ah, that's different. It's part of who we are in being the splendor of God's creation. He created us and looked with divine, eternal satisfaction and said, it's good. We're good in our created selves. But the scripture forces us on from that note of creation to the vastness or the pervasiveness of the fall as well. Look at verse 13. He has rescued us 
from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Our free will, that which Adam and Eve alone really possessed, the will to do right or to do their own desire, was lost, it was broken. When we talk about, and I hear people say, well, we have free will, or how does God respond to our free will? My answer is, he gave it to us, but Adam and Eve lost it. Because they, in their rebellion against God, said, we will not exercise our will to hear and obey. And they were traitors against God, against one another, and all of their children to come after them by natural generation, you and me and everyone else. They were traitors against their will. And now we no longer have a will that is free, except that it's free to do the wrong thing. That's not good will, is it? I don't want to be free to do the wrong thing. In the gospel, we are made free in Jesus to do the right thing. Most of you will know the name Jonathan Edwards, the premier Puritan preacher. Even in secular textbooks, often uh, young boys and girls are given uh, the opportunity to read one of his famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I guess that is put in textbooks not to encourage children to worship, but it's to give a caricature of what people thought of the Puritans, lest we get high on our horse, we're thought of that by many people, as uh, many did, that the Puritans were stern, unbending, unyielding. That's the subject of another sermon another time. His grandfather would have been the best-known early American preacher if his grandson hadn't been such a great preacher. Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who preceded him in that Northampton, Massachusetts pulpit for 40 years. Wow, that's that's just incredible. I'm never going to live that long to be uh, someplace 40 years. You've got a good go on that bill with over 30. That's so rare anymore. He preached with power. And all of us who are used to what typically comes from a Presbyterian pulpit might have been sort of off-put by Solomon Stoddard because like John Knox in Scotland, he'd beat on the pulpit and he'd yell and people would be frightened of the judgment and they would repent. What he often said is, the problem with us as human beings is not that we will not just because we're ignorant or uneducated. It's not that we just have a hard head and that we do whatever we want to do. And if put in the right environment, as some would say, educated the right way, as some would say, then we do right. Solomon said for 40 years, it's not that we will not, it's that we cannot. We cannot do the right thing outside of Jesus. And that 
those sermons on the majesty of God and the power of God to convert and change and make us not into good people or better people, but new people, came to be known as canonism. Now, Stoddard didn't like that. Sort of sound like a joke to him, but people said it and said, ah, canonism. Is old Stoddard going to preach on what we cannot do again this Sunday? Well, that's applicable for us as well. The gospel is so glorious is that Jesus does what we say it cannot do. We cannot do the right thing. But Jesus does everything right. I'm going to preach a sermon, a funeral on Tuesday. It's called A Perfect Faith from a Perfect Savior. For a dear saint in Memphis who died at 101 years, 7 months, and 2 days. I can't think that I ever think of someone's uh, chronology in just that sort, but when you lived 101 years, 7 months, and 2 days, it's worth remembering. All through that saint's life, she confessed what she could not do, even in the latter years of disability, but what God could do. And that's our testimony as well. We confess that we were Satan's subjects, thinking, acting, created, debilitated, We're enemies in our minds. But verse 14 directs us to him in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are bought back from the enemy's grip. We are brought back at the great price of the Savior's humiliation. And then his exaltation. Our relationships are made new. There's an old gospel song that speaks about when one becomes saved. And the singer says, when I looked at my hands, my hands looked new. When I looked at my feet, they did too. Everything about us seems new in Jesus. We are new. Our true humanity is restored in Jesus Christ. And we are all in faith restoration projects. We are all being made new till that completion is done when we see him face to face. We have arisen from the ashes, the dust heap of our rebellion and our sin. And the supremacy of Christ is exhibited in each of us because he literally has arisen also. And he's able to give life to us. What a privilege! What a salvation. What a savior. There's the glory of the creation. There's the vastness or the pervasiveness of the fall. And there's finally the glory of redemption. 
That is the story of each one of us. It's the personal testimony that we share. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The one whom we refer to in the puny way that we can, because we don't know a better way of saying it, the God-man, to try to describe what those in early councils wrestled over saying and finally gave to us in our formularies that help us to understand the unique nature of Jesus, one never before him and never like him and never one to be after him, the one who is eternally God, eternally man. The basis for our redemption, for our salvation, lay in him who makes all things new. Gerard Manley Hopkins, a great English poet, in his poem, God's Grandeur, spoke of the bent world. It's the world bent by our creative disobedience. If there should have been a straight line, either horizontally or vertically, between us and God, it is bent by not only Adam and Eve's sin and the sinful nature that they transmit on to us, a woeful inheritance, but by our individual sins as well. It would be convenient if we could blame Adam and Eve for the predicament that we're in and say, well, they did it all wrong. I'm innocent, but we're not. We're guilty, 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 apart from Jesus. We have, at every point in our thinking and our acting, taken the goodness of God and his law and the way he reveals himself in nature, and we put our hands in it and we despoil it at every point. It must be a point of humility to the preacher when we stand and declare the goodness of God that is with the notion that what you are hearing is what the scripture describes as the foolishness of preaching. It's not that this word is foolish. It is that God deigns to use ones who are dust, who are going to return to dust, to stand and do what these stones could do if he desired. With all of our impure motives, with our mistakes. Let me illustrate to you how I think about it sometime. I can remember when I was a Cub Scout and we were having to do good deeds for our parents. You know where this is going. It's going to be a mess, isn't it? And I decided that I would cook breakfast for mom and dad. Now, I knew I was going out of my comfort zone because I wasn't supposed to play with the oven. And I'd seen my mother put a little bit of butter, bacon drippings in with uh, to cook uh, something. And so I thought, well, I ought to do that with the eggs. I cooked a bacon first and 
didn't get it all dry, so it was looking pretty pitiful and limp. And then the eggs, I thought, well, I put a little butter in it and well, a little bit of bacon drippings too. And that was looking a bit more odd sliding around the skillet than mom did. And things didn't come out right because I had one thing done early and the other. And then I forgot to make the toast. And as I was, I knew not to try to make coffee as I got the orange juice together and, and, uh, <laughs> my parents smelled something. And what are you doing? Don't come down. Don't come down. I'm doing something for scouts. I can't imagine the horror they may have had and what was going on down there. And so I got it all on the tray. I took the orange juice up first because I didn't want to spill it. And I said, don't move, don't move. And I went downstairs and got what was then some burnt toast, uh, scraped it off. The butter was hard, and I just put some on there and put the toast on top of it and forgot the jelly and got everything and then brought it up to them. I was beaming. I was so excited to have done this. And my parents looked so fondly on it. My dad said years later, I just couldn't imagine that your mother and I were going to have to eat that. <laughs> it was cold and greasy burnt toast and I was looking at them with great satisfaction well did I make enough <laughs> my dad said oh it's plenty it's plenty don't need to make any more <laughs> and I think I can imagine God in his graciousness and his kindness at what I think may be my best crafted sermon researched in the original language pouring over it in prayer and looking at what others have said to be something akin to that breakfast that I took up and thought, isn't this great? And my parents said, thank you so much. You've done a great job. And how God accepts our service, uh, touched by our sin, defiled by our mixed motives and intentions, and as we offer it in the love and through the love of Jesus, he finds it a delight. It is the bent world which is made straight because of what Jesus does. When Isaiah prophetically speaks of that time when the rough places shall be made plain, and every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low, those of you who know the Messiah, I'm thinking about those strains from uh, the Messiah chorus that we'll sing at Christmas in here. The rough places are made plain. That's the glory of redemption. The rough places in your heart and my heart, friends. The majesty and the glory of Jesus enters into it makes it the plane of salvation and holiness and righteousness and proper living. The rough places of life, which I refer to the men at the retreat as those sharp edges of God's providence. Those things that we by our creative disobedience have done and what is done to us. The hard things to bear are made as we come to God and Jesus easy to bear because there is no longer alienation. There is no longer any 
accusation. Romans 8 tells us in that magisterial New Testament passage, there is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The unity of creation is restored. Our broken, bent will, our sinful will, is now restored and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through His Word, through the glory of His name as He calls to us. He speaks to us a different path and how we should follow. And we have certainty that when He speaks, that's true. And we follow. And we want to follow. And He will lead us not only to the end, but will lead us into the corridors of eternity, which shall never end. He speaks... We hear his voice. The foulness of us is being more and more removed through sanctification. We are being brought upward and onward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which every believer should be longing for, whether you're young, whether it's a time in which you Wonder how well things are going for you and perhaps you're uncertain. Maybe green in your salad days of spirituality. Or mature in the ripeness of years and spiritual maturity. Whatever it is, there ought to be in you that longing for the completion of that which your heart aches for the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate purpose of Christian nurture and education is to cultivate the creation. As we live and learn, worship, rest, and recreate in the presence of God. It's not merely to shape values, to integrate ethics and knowledge, to lead so-called productive lives but it is to hold forth the word of life to a world that needs it so desperately in every place where you are, that is longing for it from you in ways that you may not imagine, aching for it from you and your prophetic task, and each of you do have a prophetic task, to yield forth the word of life in obedient lives, in proper testimony, in seeking the reformation of society at every point in which we are in. It is a great and a grand task, but that's what the church is for. And that's why we have this day hallowed by God's example in which we come and join and say, we're not doing it individually as as one and one and one and one, but we are doing it together as God's people in God's place by God's assignment with God's holy benediction upon it with God's promise that we shall have success. Amen. Does somebody agree with me in this church? Amen. That's what we're about. And we take the Lord's Supper from time to time as weary pilgrims who need to be refreshed by a meal that is so little in its elements, a little bit of the juice, a little bit of bread, but it's powerful. It says to us that by appointment we stop as 
wayfaring pilgrims and we're renewed again as we look forward to that great supper and that fellowship that shall have no end where the majesty the glory of God is displayed and we seeing it shall be enthralled overwhelmed in the best way because then we will begin to understand something of what it means and I'm thinking of the strains of the Messiah I love it so well as the chorus sings and he shall reign forever and ever when Handel wrote the score for that scripture, all those scripture texts. At one point, his house servant came into him and he was in tears. He had just finished the transcribing of the Hallelujah Chorus and he said, it was as if I saw heaven opened and the great God himself. And then it was so good to him that his, I say this with a bit of humor, it was like he couldn't end it. He said, amen, and it's over 30 times that the chorus sings, amen, 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 amen. It just got good to him. He was filled with the Spirit. And so daily should we. For he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen, 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 forever and ever, world without end. That is the majesty, the glory, the splendor of the one true God. And he's our brother. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your power, your glory, your might. For all that you have promised, all that you have done, we sing your praises and know that we have the privilege of doing that for eternity. Christ, our only Redeemer. Amen. Friends, at the end of the Christian service,